February 19th, 2012, lecture discussion number 57 on the book of Romans. And, and now I realize that every so often it's necessary to restate my lesson plan. I got accused of this all the time when I was teaching as well, so you'll understand why. The course outline that I have, if you will, uh, I got to restate it for a couple of reasons. It is evidence that I indeed have a lesson plan, uh, that thus quelling the rumors otherwise. And then uh, it then has the added benefit of bringing clarity to the class as to why we are discussing the passages that we are in the context of the book of Romans, because, and this may come as a great shock and surprise to many people here, uh, I really do I, I know some are whispering, I can hear you, that uh, I just haphazardly rummage around grabbing things out of the Bible and string them together with no clue how they fit. And I know, I hear you, but uh, I, um, I do indeed have a lesson plan. Every oh, So often when I was in the school district, they would come down and ask me to produce my lesson plan. Do they still do that for you guys? Oh, wow. Is that right? Wow. See, they were very suspicious of me. <laughs> can you imagine such disrespect? <laughs> yes, I know you can. And there are some here, it amazes you, there are some here that think that I do not have a lesson plan. Um, hardly, they're very rare. Let me say that. There's hardly 30 or 40 of you here this evening that might think that. But uh, nonetheless... Occasionally, I have to prove it, and today is that occasion. So once again, the questions that I always have to ask, where are we now, where have we been, uh, and where is, where have we been, and how is where have we been, sorry, connected to where we're going? And, and let me see if I can sufficiently answer those for today. That's today's plan for a while. We are headed where? We're headed to James 2. We're headed to James 2 because there's a large contingent of Bible interpreters uh, out there who insist that James 2 is in conflict with Romans 4. And we have come from Romans 4. And I would say that this contingent doesn't prevail, but is certainly strong and has to be dealt with. They also might teach, for example, that James 2 is really about works. It's teaching about a works-based salvation. And Romans 4 is presenting, therefore, a partial, truncated explanation of salvation. And in other words, Romans 4 is missing something, and it is missing James 2. And then James 2 has authority over Romans 4. So Romans 4 is subject to James 2. And hopefully that makes sense. Hopefully I've correctly stated what they present. Uh, I, as you know, don't see that. I see James 2 is absolutely the same as Romans 4. Uh, equal, in perfect agreement, unity, sameness. They're both declaring the same truth, the identical truth, the identical doctrine. Salvation is by grace, through belief, faith, in the name, in the blood of Jesus Christ alone. It is not by works. Both of them are saying the same thing. Now, not everybody agrees with me, which would make them what? That's right, would make them wrong. I say Romans 4 is, is and James are the same, and they're both doing the same thing. Romans 4, as you remember, has put belief or believing God 
in contrast to, in the opposite of, him who works. So I have believing God or him who works. Not believing God and him who works. So I do not have law and grace. I have law or grace. And I believe that is the correct doctrinal truth. I think I can prove that. And I'm pounding away on it as we go. So the contrast of Romans 4 is exactly that of James 2. They are doing the same thing, but some people do not believe that and they don't see it. Now, hopefully, you remember that prior to confronting this Romans 4 collision between belief and works, because it is put in a, in a context of collision in Romans 4, we were in this journey of what? Where did we come from? We were in the ubiquity of law, or the universalism of law, and uh, that was Edgar Andrews, I forget which chapter, and you think I have forgotten Edgar, but you'll see today that we're really gumming right back to him. Mostly him today. Um, but we have the ubiquity of law. Law is universal. No matter where you go in the creation, you will find law, and you will find it as it is. And that law could not, and cannot, and would not, and has not been uh, ever evolutionary. In other words, law cannot have an evolutionary origin. Law must be uh, sourced. In other words, law must have a source. And this source must do something with the law, not just create the law, but what must the source do? The source must give the law. That's very important, the word give. I cannot have law without it being given. It cannot evolve in the sense of a macro sense. It can be changed minutely, if you will, microly, but it cannot be. It must have, as I said, a source who then must give his law. And I want you to notice that pattern. You'll see the same thing if you study language. Language must be taught. Language must have a source. And it must be given to the next person in order for language. There is no spontaneous eruption, if you will, of law or language. The same thing is true with the law of biogenesis, which says what? The law of biogenesis says that life has to have what as its source? It has to have life. I cannot have life from non-life. Life must come from life. It is the law, Louis Pasteur, of biogenesis. Immediately, you'll note that evolutionary philosophy is in opposition to the law of biogenesis. What does evolutionary uh, philosophy say? It says that life has a non-life source. What's the non-life source? It's a rock. Life came from a rock. Now, we can do that experiment today. We can get as many rocks as you wish, and we can observe whether or not life ever comes from a rock. You, immediately, you can see that that's senseless. But how, how is it that it has captured academia today? And they know full well that it is in conflict with the law of biogenesis. Next, or actually prior to ubiquity of law and the sourcing of law, and um, tree of potestas, if you might remember that, actually prior to to that, was the proofs. Remember the proofs. I had proofs. I had proofs for the Jew. What was the proofs for the Jews? Do you remember? It was the the Torah. The Jew was given the law directly by God himself. So he had a tremendous advantage, the Jew did. He had the law to prove to him that, that there was a God, there was a true God, and the God was the God of Israel. So he had that. It was a terrific, unbelievable gift that God has given the Jews. Directly from him, the Jews got the law. But what did the Gentile have? 
The Gentile had the invisible that is clearly seen. What's he mean by that? He means his physical creation. You can just simply evaluate his physical creation and you can clearly see that it is in fact that, a creation. So the Gentile had the invisible that is clearly seen. The Jew had the law directly given by God. And both then can understand the things that are made so that all are without excuse. And that was the key. All are without excuse. If you stand before the throne and you say, I didn't know you exist, Romans will tell you, that will not work. All are without excuse. And and everyone in this auditorium is particularly ruined. Because the tape of Lecture 57 will be played at your judgment. And eventually, those who declare that God does not exist, those who are not thankful for their existence, because there are many who are not thankful for their existence, and they reject his blessing, and they love themselves. In other words, they love the creature themselves rather than the creator. They worship themselves. That's hedonism. That's narcissism. They love and worship themselves, and they see only themselves as the reason for anything. Instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the physical creation themselves. And God says that at some point in that process that he will do something. What will he do? He will give them over to their debased mind. So it is possible for a mind to become debased. Very important to know that. A mind can become debased. And now what's the obvious question? What is the definition of a mind? How does it become darkened How does it become depraved? As the Bible says, the mind can disintegrate. That is an interesting question. At least I think it's interesting, interesting in which I'm going to, I'm going to uh, deal with it today. So, no one has an excuse. All have sinned. All have sin in them. All of us have sin in us. So what does that mean to us? That means that we are in need of a lifeblood transfusion. We have to find life, and we have to have it in a blood form. We have to have something called lifeblood. Where is the source of lifeblood? Where do we go to the lifeblood store to get our lifeblood? Can we afford our lifeblood? Can we earn our lifeblood? Do we have enough money to buy lifeblood? How precious is lifeblood? How much a drop? How much do I pay for a drop? So we go to the lifeblood store. Who is the lifeblood store? There's only one source of life, blood. He's got it. That's Jesus Christ. That's why he adds humanity. So we are in need of a life, blood transfusion, and we are in need of a legal substitute, somebody who can substitute for us at our trial. That's the plan, right? All have sinned, all need life, blood, all need a substitute. There is none who is an exception to this. None. And Romans said so. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who does good. No, not one. Therefore, by deeds, by deeds, which means what? By works. Therefore, by deeds, no flesh will be saved. The justified, the legally justified, will instead be saved by what? 
The just shall live by what? Faith. Belief. Only by believing God is it possible to be saved. And that's something, if you remember us going through this now, I'm trying to go in order for you as best I can so you can recognize it, especially if you have missed a few Sundays. But only by believing God is it possible to be saved, and that's something that Abraham, Paul put Abraham in front of the Jews. Before Abraham was circumcised, Abraham believed God and was saved. And so circumcision is not something that will save you. He proved that to the Jews, because the Jews believed that physical circumcision was a saving event. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, said no. And then after that, we have David as another proof. So the three great proofs, Abraham, David, and circumcision. The second David, David in the aftermath, if you will, of his great wickedness, of the rape of Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah. David understood, he confirmed that that what was said about Abraham is true. Abraham believed and Abraham was saved. And David said, blessed is the man who is forgiven, because if anybody needed to be forgiven, at that particular time he wrote that, David knew it was himself. So along this path comes many valuable truths, if only the traveler will gather them all up. There is a great gulf between lots of things in the Bible. A great gulf. And understanding how these chasms and contrasts and these gulfs work, very important. Great divide between physical and spiritual. And though there is a great spiritual, even though there is a divide, what else is there though? Though there is a divide between physical and spiritual, there also is an interaction between physical and spiritual. So though I am divided, there is a difference between the spiritual and the physical, and there is a great divide, but there is also an interaction between the spiritual and the physical. Physical and spiritual both must be understanding that interaction. You've got to reason out the differences and the similarities, if you will, or the cooperation, if you will. And you have to do it correctly in order to get James 2. James 2 is going to do something too. It's going to contrast, just as Romans 4 did, it's going to contrast works and faith. Just as Romans puts faith and belief in contrast to circumcision and works, it ends in debt. So, law, faith are separated. But yet they interact, don't they? Mind, body are separated. Oops, I should I should put the mind on the spiritual side here. So you see the pattern. The body would be on the physical side. The mind, though the mind and the body are separated, the mind and the body interact. They have a codependency, if you will. Cognition and self-awareness. What is cognition? You may not know. Self-awareness over here. We'll get to it in just a... You have self-awareness. How do I know that you have self-awareness? Because I have self-awareness. I know I'm Steve. So I say hi to me a lot. Hi, Steve. I know who you are. How do I know who you are? 
Because you tell me who you are, because you have self-awareness. Self-awareness is knowing that you exist. If you wish, think of uh, Rene Descartes, Cartesian philosophy. I think, therefore, I am. I exist because I can think. You have a mind, you have a body, your mind has self-awareness. What's the obvious question? You also have cognition. What is cognition really quickly? It's process solving, if you will. The ability to... What's that? Yeah, it's the ability to manipulate your physical environment, to respond, to reason, to demonstrate uh, who you are. Self-awareness is not the same as cognition. But in either case, where did, what is the origin of self-awareness? Where does it come from? What is the, how does cognition work? And eventually we get to death. What is death? If I define death, what is it? It's on the board. What is it? It is the separation of the spiritual from the physical. That is the definition of death. Right here. I hope you're beginning to see the pattern. Death, separation, spiritual from the physical. It is exactly that, which we should expect. And we should see this kind of thing all over the Scripture. Because who would know this? Who would understand how to put it into words? Who would understand this, this kind of division yet interaction? Only somebody that understood how we were designed, right? So the designer would put it somewhere, wouldn't he, for us to find, and he has. Try to find this kind of thing anywhere else. You, you won't. It's only in the Bible, and that is evidence of the origin of the Bible and the author of the Bible being the designer of all of creation. The spiritual is set apart from Dead works, if you will, because I have works that is dead, and I have belief, right? Or faith again. Okay? Works is called dead. The, the, the physical body, the physical world is called cursed and dying and corrupted. The flesh that must be resurrected and changed and transformed. And no, also, as I said, the spiritual can be debased. The spiritual must be renewed. So again, a gulf, but a coacting, a cooperation, an interaction, if you will. All of that is, as is said today, as a reminding to get you uh, back to where we are now, the beginning of the lecture. Okay? So I hope that helped you. hope you know that's where we've been. And that is why we are headed to James 2. Because that is the plan. Where do I go after James 2, according to the lesson plan that I have? Don't you feel bad for accusing me of not having it? None of you feel bad. Where do I go after James 2? I can go back to Romans 5. What does that mean? Yes, that means more physics. All of this is a reminder, a reminding, but also because this has been a week where almost every single day somebody has come by or called to talk about prayer and death. Happened almost every single day. On the phone yesterday, at least an hour or better on this subject. Twice. So I guess that'd be two hours. And I have prayer and belief also.
death and belief. And hopefully you can deduce the obvious connection between prayer and belief and death and belief. And if not, perhaps today is the best day of late to readdress the fundamentals. As this week, as I said, has been particularly filled with evidence that I have been unsuccessful in teaching the fundamentals. So, as with any subject, sometimes it's advisable to try a different approach. Earlier this week, a man, while I was out shoveling the driveway, and that's what? It's evidence that I shoveled the driveway. That's right. I'm tired of it now. As we have been shoveling it, as you know, so many times that uh, I cannot, it's so high in places that I have no place to put all the snow, so I'm going to my, what I call, spring strategy, which is to wait till when to shovel snow again. That's right, June. And once I get to June, then I'm waiting all the way till November. That's because you could pack it down. I mean, just kind of drive over it. It's going to melt. And I'm going with that. I am tired. I'm not going to move nothing. We're doing nothing. So Amanda, even though she's pregnant, it's too bad. She's going to have to walk. No. Lori will go out and shovel for Amanda. So anyway, earlier this week, as a man, a man happened by on my last day of shoveling. And his wife is dying. Drove up, and his wife is dying, and she is dying slowly, and her mind is losing its functionality. Her cognition is disrupted. That's a result, by the way, of the pharmaceuticals that they give you. You will find out something, everybody will. When my dad died, he told me, he said that it's time for, he's screaming at me, Stephen. Go get me a professional. You probably heard me talking about this story. And I said, what? What professional do you want, Dad? He was 90. And he said, get me a professional. You are not a professional. And he screamed at me as loud as he could possibly scream. You are not a professional. Go get me a professional. And the woman from Palmer showed up. I didn't know what he meant. He was able to get a professional without me. I found out what he meant. The professional, in his case, came from Palmer. Some of you in the medical profession know the professional comes from all kinds of places. What does the professional bring? It brings morphine. And a morphine pump. So, I didn't know, I then knew what my dad was intending. So back to my story. This man's wife is dying. She's dying slowly. Her mind is losing its functionality because that's what the pharmaceuticals do. And that in itself, if I stop there, that results in thousands of questions for you. And that requires that we have a firm grasp on cognition and self-awareness. You must know the difference between those two. 
because that's going to lead to a question, uh, uh, or lead to a discussion, if you will, on substance dualism that you've heard me discuss many times, or Cartesian dualism, because it comes from uh, Rene Descartes' philosophy in the 17th century. The church used to have this. We used to know this in the 17th century. Now we fall asleep during these discussions. It's necessary to have ammunition in case somebody has relationship to me. Why do I make him sit in the front row? So that I can hit him from here. That's right. You must know the difference between cognition and self-awareness. You must understand substance dualism versus physicalism. Because somebody's going to die. Maybe you Okay, you are going to die. No maybe about it. So you're going to have to deal with substance dualism. And physicalism. Or material reductionism, if you want to call it that way. That in order to provide answers and comfort. To put it in another way, is the mind emergent from the brain? What do I mean by that? Is your self-awareness a product of a physical process, the result of a physical process? Does the mind emerge out of the brain? In other words, as the brain develops physically, one of the byproducts of that physical development Is that the mind? Or is the mind distinct from the brain? One physical, one non-physical. Is the mind dependent on a physical process for its existence? Is there a distinction between mental properties and physical properties? What are mental properties? Thoughts. So I have mental properties. Sadness. Emotion, mental properties, and I have physical properties. What's a physical property? Writing on the board, throwing an eraser at somebody in the front row, or a magic marker with great accuracy and velocity. It's incredible how good I used to be at that. Nowadays, it might be collateral damage. I want to consider that. Is there a distinction between mental properties and physical properties? What is the meaning of impaired consciousness or cognition or disrupted cognition? Is the fact that I have an impaired cognitive capability, is that evidence that the mind is in fact emerging from the brain? Does that make sense? The number one argument against substance dualism by most uneducated people is that the mind emerges from the brain, and cognitive failure is evidence of that. Does that make sense to you? If I cannot express myself properly because my mind is no longer functioning, and it's not functioning because of a brain trauma, either 
in the case of the congresswoman that was shot. She is no longer able to move herself properly, is she? She is no longer able to express herself properly. as She must go back and relearn how to talk, how to walk. She has lost cognitive capability. Is that evidence that that brain injury has destroyed her mind? It is a cool song, you have to admit. <laughs> the chances that it's for me is nil, but I still like the song. The answers to those and the many questions that then follow are critically important for you to be able to explain your own death or anybody else's death. And explaining death is extraordinarily valuable, the process of death. It's a precious, precious capability. If you have it, your doorbell will ring and your phone will go off and people will come to find you. How do I know that's true? I finally reached the age where uh, Anna got me a book for Christmas. It says, all your friends are dead. Yeah, it's actually very funny. I should, should bring it here. But it, it is somewhat true for me now. Uh, my dad was fond of saying that he outlived all seven doctors that told him to change his diet. Uh, the last one was a wonderful Indian woman. Her name was Ihi Hikifu. And she told him he had colon cancer. He was 88 or so. And she told him that he had to hurry and get that fixed. And he just busted up laughing. He thought that was so funny. And he repeated his own joke over and over again to her. Is it going to kill me, doctor? How long have I had it? (laughs) How long have I got? No, he thought that was very funny. And it was very funny. He'd laugh and laugh and laugh and she couldn't get him to take her seriously. (laughs) She told him he might have five years to live. (laughs) And he just thought that was hysterical. He did understand to give him his due. He really did. It is a very precious capability to know what's happening in the death process. And for us individually and for the sake of the dying, I'm in a place now in my life where people are calling me because they are 20 years, 30 years older than I am, and they're facing it, their own individual death. My dad asked me, What is it going to be like? What's going to happen to me? How's this going to work? And I knew what to do and what to say. You need to know. Somebody soon will ask you if you know. If you don't know, what will God do? He will make sure nobody talks to you. So then you become what? Worthless to him. Even more so. Anyway, the man continued by saying this, that in spite of fervent, constant prayer from many people, beseeching God to allow his wife to live, and though he had given God plenty of good reasons that God should consider for his wife to live, it was now obvious that she will die very soon. Now, inherent in that is the man's observation. Inherent in the man's observation is a couple of things to note. One, 
Is the purpose of prayer is the purpose of prayer <coughs> if God is omniscient uh, and he is omniscient what then is the purpose of prayer? If God is immutable which means what? It means unchangeable. You cannot change him. And he is. Anything you find in the Bible where you think God is changing is called what normally? It's called a dramatic theodicy. Okay? So if you find something in the Bible where you think Abraham is changing God's mind or Moses is changing God's mind, that is not what's happening there. God is immutable. That is a dramatic theodicy. If God is immutable and he is unchangeable, then what is the purpose of prayer? What is the purpose of prayer if God is omniscient? What is the purpose of prayer if he is unchangeable? Why are we commanded to pray without ceasing? What does without ceasing mean? Those are just a few of the questions that you have to ask when you get into the purpose of prayer. Is it possible, by the way, to give God anything? Do you have anything good to give God? No, God is the possessor of all things, Genesis 14, 18 through 22. Do we have any good ideas that he hasn't thought of? No, we don't. Do we have ideas that he doesn't know or he hasn't considered or that, no. See rule one, he's omniscient God. In times of great sadness, we are all very poor theologians. Sadness is what? A mental property or a physical property? It is a mental property. The other day, Eric was there and he has a phone and it has some dog thing. He pushed the button and he pushed the button and my Labrador retriever, Abigail, absolutely went into a panic attack and shook violently because she was afraid. What is fear? It is a mental property. What was the result of the fear? A physical response. How can a mental property cause a physical response? Can a mental property cause a physical response? Obviously, it does. We all know that. How does that work? In times of great sadness, as I said, we're all very bad theologians. Uh, So don't be judgmental. Because you're going to be a bad theologian, just like me, just like everybody that is when we get uncontrollably sad or discouraged or frustrated, even angry. So don't be judgmental. But But be aware that we are particularly prone to uttering doctrinal nonsense when we're hurt. So, when considering prayer, first and foremost, we must understand that prayer is a non-physical action. Prayer... Is non-physical. Just like what? I asked you. I hope you can see the relationship between death and prayer. What is the relationship between death and prayer? One is a physical. One is a non-physical. There's a relationship there now. What is the relationship between prayer and belief? They're both non-physical. Okay? Prayer is a non-physical action. So God is commanding that we pray unceasingly. What is he commanding that we do? He is, he's commanding that we have a spiritual act that is unceasing. We should expect that to be the case. So if you are not praying every day, you are not following that commandment. 
Something is happening to you now. And it isn't good. We should expect that something is happening to us when we fail that commandment. When Jesus Christ now, God himself in the flesh, he did something when he prayed. What did he do that's really unique? What did he do? He left evidence of it. How did he leave evidence of his prayers? How do I know he left evidence of his prayers? Because people witnessed it. And then what did they do with it? They wrote it down, and I have the written recording. How do I know that they witnessed it and understood it? Because he went around playing, praying, play, praying aloud. What's the obvious question? Why would Jesus Christ pray aloud? Does he need to pray aloud? Who is he again? Let's go back over this. He is God himself, creator God, the Lord God Almighty, in the flesh. And he's praying aloud. Why did he pray aloud? He has all kinds of aloud prayers. Did he need to pray aloud? Did he need to pray aloud in order to communicate to the triune Godhead? Who's in the triune Godhead? He's in the triune Godhead. Hopefully you see where that would take you if you answered incorrectly yes. If you said that he needed to pray aloud in order to be heard by the Father, you would be incorrectly uh, anticipating the answer. He does not need to do that. So he did it for why? For the sake of those who would keep the record and provide the evidence. Who's that? That ultimately is you and me and us. and We are the ones for whom he prayed aloud for. Did he, God, creator God, omniscient creator God, know that his disciples and the multitudes of people would be listening to him? The answer is, duh. Distinguish then Christ's sinless prayers and our sinful prayers. Do we have sinful prayers? Yes, we do. What is the purpose of prayer, by the way, first and foremost? I'm getting to that in a minute, so think about it. But I'll give you an aside purpose. Uh, It is something that you are to do, that we are to do. It's a legal process. We are supposed to walk up to the judge every single day and do what? Hand him a list of what? Of our what? Sins. We're supposed to turn them in like like a paper. Here's what I did. I... If you want to write them down, fine. What do you do next? Shred them. That's right. Do not let any man ever hear them. Why? I know that goes against the grains of a very large church that specializes in hearing prayers. You uh, you say those things aloud to a human being, and that human being is going to find you. You think about them. It's a mental process. And you turn them into God every day. I lied to that person. I kicked that dog out of frustration and anger. She got bit. But I didn't. I directed traffic. Middle finger. Whatever. Whatever you did, you confess it every day. That you are legally required to do so. Why? Does he know them? Does he need to hear them? No. So who's it for? It is for you. And if you don't do it, what happens to you? Wampum bad things. 
unconfessed sin. So, prayer for us is communication and it is evidence of belief in the spiritual God, John 4.24. Do you see how it is evidence of belief? You are doing a non-physical thing because you've been commanded to do something non-physical. You are praying to somebody who is non-physical. He says he's spiritual. You are doing what he wants you to do. And so, therefore, what are you doing? In your core... By the way, this might solve Matthew 6 for you if you read Matthew 6. What's it say, Matthew 6? Go into your room. Shut the door. Go into your room and shut the door. Why? Because this is a spiritual process. And it is for who? Two. Who's it for? You and him. Do not be like the Pharisee who goes around and screams his prayers out on the street corner so that he can be heard by men. That's what it says. Go into your room, shut the door. This is a spiritual, non-physical process. Okay? And pray to your Father who sees in secret. Prayer is acknowledgement that you believe and seek to communicate to an unseen Creator God. Prayer then has a direct relationship or correlation to belief and thus to the spirit soul. We commit to a non-physical act in obedience to a command from God who is spirit because we are saved by a non-physical act of belief. Does that make sense to you? I hope so. Because of the continuity of the soul that survives physical death. That is very important. I am going to demonstrate to you by whatever means I can use now that I can prove to you might not get it completely done today, but I hope so, that there is continuity of being, if you will, of soul after physical death. Thank you. I see. She's telling me I have ten minutes for my proof. Oh, piece of cake. The soul continues to survive physical death. I can prove it. Prayer is a continuous recognition of how we are designed. When you are praying a spiritual prayer, you are saying that you have a spiritual component. And you are saying that that spiritual component survives physical death. That is why you pray. It is an acknowledgement of that. Okay, that last part, the continuity, might not register quite yet, but it will. Hopefully it will. Okay, I want you to think about things that you have to deal with. You have to understand the difference between mental properties and physical properties. Mental properties are different. There's no dispute. Not scientifically, not philosophically. There's no dispute that mental properties are are different than physical properties. What's in dispute is how they originate. And then the explanation of how they originate and how they function. What explains the origin of mental properties? That's the debate. Okay. Physicalism, a physicalist. What is a physicalist or what is physicalism? Physicalism is somebody that says everything is physical. Everything. It says, they say and they will say to you that your mental properties are physical. Even though they don't appear to be physical. Let me ask you an obvious question. A physicalist has to do something. He's also a monist. He says that there is no spiritual component at all. When you die, you will cease to exist because the physical body dies and the mental properties are a result of the physical body. And so they die too and you cease to exist. That's physicalism. Okay? 
in contrast to Cartesian dualism, as I said, or substance dualism, or the dualist versus the physicalist. And I recognize this is terminology that many of you have never heard. I keep repeating it to get you familiar with it. It's not like anything else. It's like real estate. You get the terms in your mind, and pretty soon it starts to make sense to you. That's my goal here. But the physical, I'm sorry, physicalism says that I can reduce everything to something. What, I, what can I do? I can reduce that tin can. I can reduce this carpet. I can reduce the food. I can reduce you to something. What? To a small particle. It's reducible. Everything is reducible. Okay? How far can I reduce it? Reducibility is very, very important to them. Especially to particles. So, I have a thought. One of, my, one of the great lines in all of basketball coaching was uh, Jim Valvano. He died of cancer. There's a big thing about him. But a referee came up to him and told him he, could, he couldn't yell at him anymore. Stop yelling at me. If you yell at me one more time, then I'm getting you out of here and your assistants out of here. I'm going to shut it down. Stop yelling at me. So Valvano said, okay, if I can't yell at you anymore, can I think things about you? See the difference? The physical yelling versus the mental property, the thinking. And the referee said to him, yes, you can think whatever you want. And Valvano said, I think you stink. Which, which was a mistake. Because that took the mental property into a physical form, right? That's why. The, uh, but the, the thought. What is a thought? If you decide that it derives from a physical process and therefore is is if it derives from a physical process, then it is what? It's physical. That's what the physicalist says. It's somehow physical. We don't know how it's physical. And it's reducible. So what's the obvious question? It's reducible to what? How heavy is a thought? How much does a thought weigh? What is the mass weight of a thought? Or an emotion? Or an idea? Is it physical? Can I make it into mass? It has no mass. How much space does it take up? How What volume, what spatial volume does it have? How many thoughts can I put into a Coke can? It has no spatial volume and it has no physical weight. How can it be physical? It's not physical. How do I have something that is non-physical emerge from something that is physical? That's in violation of Chronister's Law, right? Law number one, a physical process or a physical entity cannot cause or create or, or emit a non-physical process or component, Chronister's Law. So you got that deal with. You have the mind-body problem or the mind-brain problem or the soul-body problem. That's what this is called in philosophy and in science. And substance dualism holds that the mind and the brain are two different or distinct realities. In other words, they're two different substances. The, the physical is a physical substance that's reducible and the mental property is non-physical. It's supernatural and they are different substances. Both are essential components of human existence and each other, each one exists in theory without the other. Did you hear me say that? Each one exists in theory without the other. In other words, the mind can survive without the body, and the body can survive in theory without the mind. Dualism assumes significant cooperation and interaction between the two. Unexplainable cooperation and interaction. It's called dualistic 
interactionism. Thus, human existence is best explained and only explained as consisting of two distinct and interacting principles, physical and non-physical. Now, the physicalist, he, he says no. He says the mind, it's called emergentism. The mind is emergent from and dependent solely upon the physical process of the brain. And therefore, is itself some kind of unexplainable physical process. It ceases to exist at the death of the brain. Monistic cessation of existence. Okay. Reductionism, reducibility, measurement, we just covered that, versus irreducibility. Now, the number one attack on dualism comes from the law of conservation of energy. What is the law of conservation of energy? It says essentially that energy is a closed environment ironclad feature of the universe that matter and energy are fixed. So, how, do, how does the mind then uh, affect the brain if it can't have energy? Let me ask you this. Is information, is that energy? Let me ask you another thing. Why do I know that the law of conservation of energy is true? Is there energy that the physicalist can't measure? He has physical tools. Can he measure all energy sources? How does he know that? It's very important. I just went over it really fast, but it's very important. If a mind and its thoughts, episodes taking place in it are of no size, they occupy no volume of space, have no position. Because that's the next thing I ask you about your thought. It doesn't have any volume. It doesn't have any weight. What's its position? Where is your thought? Find it for me. Bring it here. Here's a box. Where does your thought go? Can you get it back? So it, it has no size, no mass. It occupies no volume of space. And it has no spatial position. How do we explain its interaction with a physical brain? If it's emergent, if your mind is emergent from the brain, what does your mind do immediately after it emerges once the, if the brain produces the mind and the, brain, and the mind comes out, what's the first thing your mind does? It takes over. Explain that. How is it that the mind comes out of the brain then takes the brain over? It has what? The mind. That's right. It has a mind of its own. Yeah, very good. Very good. Exactly what it has. How do you explain that, you physicalist? Brain condition affects the quality of mental events, neuromechanical events, brain damage, lack of sleep. If you don't have enough sleep, some of you come here to get sleep, and I provide it for you at no charge. It's what I do. But if you have no sleep, your disposition is, you have a predisposed genetic problem. Um, you're just mad all the time. Uh, or whatever you are. So brain damage, lack of sleep genetic disposition, pharmaceutical impact, all of those things affect your cognition, affect consciousness, self-consciousness, self-awareness, qualia, metacognition, all of that stuff. 
Many people believe this is a definitive proof that dualism is false. And that's the most common objection, as I said earlier. If thought can be affected by the state of the brain physically, then thought must consist in the operation of the brain. That's what they will tell you. And dualism acknowledges uh, something along this line. Dualism says, okay, the guitar is one of our ways of explaining it. If the guitar breaks, the quality of the music is affected. If the tuning is bad, the quality of the music is affected. If the wood is warped or dry, the quality of the resonance of the wood and the quality of the music is affected. But the guitar is not the source of the music. The performer is the source of the music. The performance can be radically dependent upon the physical entity without the performer being dependent on the physical entity. Does that make sense? There is an interaction between the brain and the mind. There is a codependency. There is a... uh, uh, There is something going on between the two, but the brain can die and the mind is not dependent upon the brain for existence. The music does not come from the brain. The music comes from the mind. The brain is the guitar. The performer is the mind. Dualism willingly concedes that the health and welfare of the brain is essential. We do. For self-expression. You can't express who you are. Self-expression. By the way, where did yourself come from? You can't tell me who yourself is if your brain doesn't work. And if you, by the way, have the theory, if you have the philosophy that the brain is the essence of the person, what then is a person who is uh, unable to express themselves, severely handicapped or severely damaged? What is the value of that person compared to you who can express themselves? What is the value of someone who is old and can no longer express who they are versus somebody who is young and can express? If self-expression based on physicalism is the key to worth, then what have we done to the retarded? What have we done to the infirmed? We have declared them to be what? Less of a self. Do you see the philosophical pitfall that you have entered in, O Nazi Germany? I have to, religion, if anything, Christianity, if anything, says everyone is what? Of the exact same worth. Why? Because everyone is not a body. Everyone is a soul. Okay, I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit so I can finish it. With the dissolvement of the body, what is the condition of the non-physical entity? As the body dissolves, completely dissolves. You know that. Some of us, when we die, we're actually even cremated to dissolve the body completely. If the body is completely dissolved, what is the condition of the non-physical entity? Does it persist in a meaningful way that is identifiable? It's called continuity of self. And here's Chronister's second law. If continuity of self is not true, then there is no resurrection. Explain that. I know the musicians are huddled in the background trying to push me off the stage. But for Seth's sake, we will keep battling until he collapses into a putrid muck, which I can't save him from, but I'm trying. If continuity of self is not true, in other words, if my spirit soul does not continue to be me, 
If I don't have a continuing soul that survives physical death, there is no hope of resurrection. There is no real resurrection. That's Chronister's second law. And I get a lot of huhs whenever I do that. If physical death occurs and the soul dies also, resurrection is illusion. It's an illusion. It's illusionary. Let me explain that. Instead, let's imagine. Instead of me, there's a new Steve. In other words, if my soul dies, and by the way, who says your soul dies? What Christian sect says it? The biblical holism, Seventh-day Adventists. They say that if the, if the, when the brain dies, when the body dies, the soul also dies. And I say, if you agree with that, if the soul dies, then there is no resurrection. Because if my body dies and it dissolves and a new Steve, here comes Steve, doesn't he look good? That's a hat, in case you thought that was my brain. There's a new Steve. What do I put into the new Steve? As versus the old Steve, which is completely dissolved. God makes a new Steve. And what do I put into the new Steve? No, the old soul died with it. What do I put into the new Steve? I put all Steve's memories in it, right? All Steve's memories are put into the new Steve. You see the problem. Memories in essence have been what? Implanted. Where did they come from? Are they the same memories that were once there? No, those memories have dissolved. These are new memories. They're not the same memories. They're artificially implanted. In other words, as biblical holism teaches, if we utterly perish at physical death, both the spirit and this, and this body, but at some future date, someone else, new Steve, will be created and our memories will be artificially infused into their mind. If that's true, then there is no resurrection. Does that make sense to you? You'll think about it and you'll get it. I am not consoled, by the way, by such thinking that it won't be me. It'll be a new Steve that has my memories put into it. That doesn't console me. I do not want a new Abigail or a new Lori or a new Anna. Christopher, Amanda, Eric, Lindsay. The grandchildren are being called Amos, Moses, and Peanut. For those of you... You doubt that's true, I can tell. I do not want new them. I want the old them. And that requires, if the body perishes, what must continue in order for resurrection to be them? The soul must continue or there is no resurrection. And it's important to know that. It's important to be able to tell that. If not... There is no true resurrection, and it's an empty hope. Resurrection is only meaningful if in the interval between body and death and resurrection, I, we, you, are guaranteed continuity precisely as we are. And we must become then immortal, disembodied spirits. And who says that we will become immortal, disembodied spirits? The Bible says that. That's pretty lucky. For us, that God's got that worked out. He is so good at this. He keeps just kind of getting by with it every time. It's perfect. 
every single time. Now, next week, before we can go into James 2, you have to have this understood. You have to be able to do what I told you a long time ago. You have to be able to tell the dying and the survivors of the dead. Because why? Someday it's going to be you. You're going to be one of them too. You've got to make sure your kids know, your grandkids know. Where did, where did the real Steve go? He has continuity of soul. I can prove it because the mental property is different than the physical property. And the mental property cannot emerge from the physical property. And the mental property survives the death of the physical property. That means I have continuity of existence. That means resurrection is good. Now it works. Let's rise and be dismissed.